He is risen. He is risen indeed, we say. We're going to look at the text that talks about that today. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you're visiting us today, we extend a special welcome to you. We invite you to come back again next week. Pastor Zeke couldn't be here today. Uh, he's got some family stuff he's doing. Uh, I know I know it would be like, but it's Easter. I mean, like what goes on during this time. So um, you could ask him next week when he gets back. But he's having a great time right now. Um, turn please to Luke. Luke chapter 24. We're going to go through the empty tomb and also the road to Emmaus this morning. Luke chapter 22. But man, singing that last song right now, I'm just reminded of, of the Christmas message that we go through. And there in, in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel appears to Joseph and he tells him, you're going to name him Jesus. The name Jesus literally means Savior. And so he would save people from their sin. Luke 24, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again, and they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb, told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But their words seemed to them to be idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Verse 13, it says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things that had happened. So it was while they conversed and they reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is it that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Verse 18, then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? <laughs> so they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and to crucify him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since this has happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came and said that he, they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophet had spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to a village where they were going. He indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as they sat at the table, as he sat with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to it with us on the road and while he opened the Scriptures to us? Lord, again, as we get ready to study your Word, we ask that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to give us insight and understanding and do what only you can do in teaching. So speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, here we have it first thing in the morning on Sunday morning. The ladies get up and they're going to take spices to the tomb. First day of the week, that would be again Sunday. The Sabbath is passed. And, uh, and so we know back in those days, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. And Jesus being crucified on Friday, some even think maybe Thursday. Um, and if you want to you know, Google that and do all your research, you can. But uh, but the, the disciples had to do a pretty rushed job. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, when they buried Jesus, uh, did a, a quick job of wrapping the body and throwing some spices in there and then hurrying up and getting it in the tomb so as to not defile themselves right before the feast, okay? Or right before, before the Sabbath. And so they would close the tomb and they would move on from there. And so now the ladies wake up early in the morning and go, okay, well, now that we can, let's go give this body a proper burial, and so as would be the custom in those days, what they would do is get pounds and pounds of spices. Some people say as much as 75 pounds. And they'd wrap it in between the grave cloths to, to keep the body, at least for the stench of decay, down. And they go there early in the morning. And in verse 2, it says that they find that the stone has been rolled away from the tomb. Which is really neat because on the way over there, if you read Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, that was their question to each other saying, when we get there, who's going to roll away the stone for us? You see, this stone would have been a heavy stone. Something you know, like a millstone, 6, 12 inches thick, a really heavy thing. It would, it would be there to protect from people getting into the tomb, especially animals from getting into the tomb, or even thieves. I find it very interesting that it's a group of ladies who went early in the morning to do this. Because some would have said, well, you know, maybe the men got up and just stole the body or something. Maybe somebody went. But if it's women who are going, there's, they wouldn't have had the strength to move this thing. And you'll remember also there was a Roman guard set who was there to protect the tomb. Why was that? It's so funny to me because the disciples, it would seem, through all their time with Jesus, had had forgotten that one part that he said, 
that I'm going to rise again from the grave. They, they didn't even think about it. They figured he's dead. Oh, great. Everything's lost. But the Jewish leaders goes, you remember he said he was going to rise from the dead? Can we get some soldiers over there to go protect this thing? And so the ladies go early in the morning and they have these, these problems, really, that they're going to go to try to get to the body. And how are we going to get past the Romans? How are we going to roll away the stone? Well, they get there and the tomb is empty. And so this would bring us actually to just a few uh, theories of why the tomb might be empty. And some of them are, uh, I think, outrageous, but, uh, but we'll talk through them just so that we know what some people were saying in those days and what they even continue to say into today. The first would be that the disciples came and stole the body, but of course we know that they couldn't have gotten through the Roman guards. Not only that, we know that probably at this time, not only were they home mourning, but they were afraid. You remember this? When they're in the garden and Jesus is being betrayed, they run. They, they scatter. They weren't these bold guys who were going to go and do something. Right? And we, we see even in Mark's account, there's a young man that's there in the garden with them. And they grab hold of him and he you know, snakes out of his clothes and runs off naked. That's how scared these guys were. And then to think that they would have done this and known that Jesus was dead, these guys all would go through great persecution, most of them even to death, on what would be a lie to say that he had been risen. You know, many people, when it comes to the point of your life, will not keep standing for a lie. And so we know that these guys, probably these untrained fishermen, were not the ones to take the body. This next one is kind of silly. And they say, well, the ladies probably just went to the wrong tomb. And, you know, I'm not going to take the low-hanging fruit on that one, on the jokes that could be made from this. But we'll let the reader understand. But they didn't go to the wrong grave. Uh, it says plainly they saw the place where they had laid him. I think it's rude to say this of women, that they went to the wrong place. And so that's not what happened. There's this other theory, the swoon theory, they would call it, that Jesus just fell asleep. He took a really long nap. And so he was there on the cross. And I think that's an insult to Rome. These guys were professionals at killing people. That's what they did, right? These, these crucifixions, they, they kind of knew what they were doing and how to kill a person, how to torture them and, and get them all the way to be dead. And so uh, you will, you'll even remember that when Pilate authorizes them to take the bodies down because they go, hey, you know, it's going to be a Sabbath. We really need to take these bodies down. And he goes, okay, well, go ahead. Go ahead and go break their legs so that they could die. And when they come to Jesus, they realize, oh, he's dead. He's already dead. He's not breathing. They pierce his side. Blood and water comes out. And so we know for sure that he was dead. And even if he was just asleep, how would he have gotten out of there if you can't open the thing from the inside? Okay, so let me the last one would be that the Jewish leaders possibly came and stole it. But this is this might be the silliest of all because they're the ones out of everyone who did not want to see this man rise again. Right? He had come and caused chaos for them for three years. That, that they, it's surprising that they don't want to just run this body all around town and show everyone, you see, he's dead, we could move on and get back to him. And so we know that it was God himself who not only raised Jesus from the dead, but then rolled away the stone so that we could see him. 
And so the women are there. The stone is rolled away. It says in verse 3 that they go in, but they do not find the body. And in verse 4, it says it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that two men stood by them in shiny garments. So these these angels come. And, and they're, they're not, not even close to thinking about a resurrection. They're wondering where he is. Where can we find the body, right? They even ask. And they suppose him to be the gardener and say, uh, at least tell us. Tell us where you put him. We'll go, we'll go get the body. And these two angels ask a wonderful question. They say this in, at the end of verse 5. Why do you seek the living here among the dead? It's a logical question. If you, if you read the law of Moses, you can't be around death. You can't be around dead bodies. You can't be around anything associated with death or else you're unclean. And so this uncleanness would have come on them. And so the angels go, why are you even here? He's alive anyway. You don't need to be here. The angels seemed almost surprised that the women were surprised. After all, the angels had heard what Jesus said regarding his resurrection. They knew the woman, women heard it also. And so again, this scene of death, uh, again, this tomb that we would be looking at, Joseph of Arimathea, a commentator says, would likely have a tomb carved out of a solid rock. The tomb was uh, in a garden near the place of the crucifixion. The tomb would have a small entrance and perhaps one or two compartments where bodies could be laid. And they're wrapped in these linen cloths smeared with spices and aloes and ointment. Customarily, the Jews left the bodies alone for a few years for decay to happen. Then they would come back and get just the bones, put them in a small box, and in that box they would leave that in there and then generations and generations would be stored in these places together. And then there would be a large, uh, there would be an entrance to the tomb blocked by a heavy circular shaped stone securely rolled in a channel, usually downhill, so that it would take several strong men to move it. This was done to ensure that no one would disturb the remains. And so again, the stone is rolled away. And so again, this was by no means to let Jesus out. Jesus had been long gone from there. This is so that we could see in. And they say this, verse 6, He's not here. He is risen. He's alive. He says, remember how He spoke to you these things, verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men? be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. And the emphasis there would be on that word must. This must happen. It has to happen this way. He has to be delivered. Part of it was to fulfill prophecy. Right? That back in Zechariah chapter 11, it said that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And wouldn't you know, he was betrayed. For 30 pieces of silver. And Psalm 41 says that not only would he be betrayed, he'd be betrayed by a close friend. He was. Must have happened that way, that he'd be delivered. It says that he would be crucified. It must happen this way. It must happen that he would die. Now this would be difficult, and we'll get to this in a little bit. But this being their Messiah, they thought he was going to come and conquer Rome. They thought he was going to come in and make peace right away. Not realizing that he came to make peace first with the souls of men. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Why did Jesus have to die? I know for many years I wondered this. And I remember a time when I was a young man, and uh, very young, and, and I had pretty bad asthma. And I had to go to the hospital one day and, and get some shots. And I remember looking at my dad and going, Dad, is there, is, do we have to do this? Can't, can't we do this some other way? I'll, I'll drink all the medication I need to drink. And he goes, no, son, if there was another way, we would do it. But there is no other way. And it was an emotional time, right? That my dad had to kind of hold me down so I could get my shots. In the same way we remember Jesus, who when he's there in the garden, knowing what's awaiting him, says, Father, if there's any other way. If there's any other way for what? Well, to redeem sinful man, if there's any other way. Maybe we could just make more rules. Maybe we could do something different. And, and he says, but nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. You see, since the very beginning of creation, there's been a problem that's plagued humanity. It's not a problem with contentment. It's not a problem with the economy. It's not a problem with the weather. It's a problem that every person deals with. And it's a problem of sin. We know where the term comes from if we've studied the Bible long enough. It's an archery term, right? That you have these circles inside of circles. We call it a bullseye. And the archer would pull back that bow and arrow. He'd shoot at the bullseye. And if that thing would miss the bullseye, even by a millimeter, they missed it. And you'd miss the mark. And so you were a sinner. Well, we know that God is perfect. That He has set up for us a desire for perfection. And when we fall short of that, by just a millimeter, we're sinners. Now, we know, we, we know ourselves that there's times that we take the bow and arrow. We don't even shoot for that, right? There's times we go shoot in a totally different direction. That'd be called transgression. We'll talk about that. But I'm telling you, we have had this problem. The problem isn't, well, if we had more education, we wouldn't be so sinful. If we had more of this, if we had more of that, whatever it might be, we're just guilty. We see it from the very beginning when sin first enters with Adam and Eve that God kills an animal to cover their sin. Why? Because God can't lower His standard. God can't lower the standard for heaven. Can you imagine if He would? What kind of heaven would it be if God would lower the standard? Where would we put that line of what standard is okay? Well, lying, everyone lies. Well, let's just let liars into heaven. Well, if we let liars into heaven, why can't we let, you know, other, you know, people into heaven? Or, or if liars, if lying's okay, well, what about this? And you just go through the commandments. Well, coveting, coveting's not too bad. I mean, it's just in your heart and everyone does it. You see, the problem is there becomes this gray area when you lower a standard. Right? So God couldn't lower his standard. Because if, if there's a bunch of sin in heaven, I don't want to be there. So he sets up a system, God does. You could read about it through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He sets up a system where animal sacrifice would come into place, where something innocent dies for the sins of something that's guilty. And he plainly says in Leviticus 17, that the life is in the blood and it's blood that makes atonement for the soul. 
There has to be a way for our sin to be covered so that we can have peace with God. All of this, again, the crucifixion, His death, is done in fulfillment of prophecy. And you could read all about that in Isaiah 22, in Isaiah 53, even Isaiah 50. In Psalm chapter 22, it talks about Him being pierced. It talks about Him being ridiculed. It it even goes down to say that they would cast lots for His garment. And you remember what happened, right? Right? That they're dividing his clothing. They come to one section and there's no seams in it. They go, well, we shouldn't rip it. You want to just gamble for it? I mean, all this stuff, thousands of years before, was said it would happen this way and it has happened this way. But turn with me to Isaiah 53. And as you're going to Isaiah 53, I'll tell you what it says in Isaiah chapter 50, that he says, I gave my back to them. He, he allowed himself to be humiliated, it says. But let's read Isaiah 53. It says in verse 1, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears is silent so He opened not His mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare His generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what happened there on the cross? That one who could have defended himself said, I won't defend myself. I don't owe this debt. I don't need to pay this debt. But in order to win God's people back to himself, he went to the cross. Because sin is serious to God. It's serious to God. 
There, there's no good person. There's not one. We know that when we boil ourselves down, we're wicked people, right? From birth, right? If you've got a kid, you know it, that from birth, they're wicked. And we don't get much better. And if the law has shown us anything, it's that we're in desperate need of a Savior. And so we have been saved by what Jesus did on the cross from the penalty of sin. We no longer have to go to hell. We're given heaven. We are being saved from the power of sin. But as He fills us, He gives us power over sin. And one day we will be taken from the very presence of sin. That day when we stand before Him, cross into eternity, and never have to deal with that again. And so he had to be delivered. He had to be crucified. He had to rise, though. Why did he have to rise? You know, people would say, well, that's just a part of Christianity, this rising from the grave stuff. Not everyone has to believe. No, this is the cornerstone. This is the cornerstone. Because if he did not rise, friends, we're still dead in our sins. You see, how do we know that Jesus was anything special? If I were to die for you, I'd stay in the grave. You'd go, did it take? Are my sins forgiven? How could I know? Jesus rises from the grave. And He has become the first fruits of those who go on to heaven. No, this wasn't just some common man who died for us. Jesus is the only person who's ever said, I am the only way to heaven, and then rose again to prove it. Getting back to verse 8 in Luke 24. That when the ladies hear this, it says, then they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and they told these things to the eleven. And to all the rest, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them. They told the apostle. Verse 11, it says that their words seemed to be idle tales, and they did not believe them. Well, imagine, you know, you, you know, I, sometimes we get on the disciples and go, man, these guys, they're just, they're just blockheads, man. But have, I don't know if you've ever lost somebody. What would you do if somebody walked in three days later and goes, oh, no, 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 I saw them, they're alive. Oh, stop it. How insensitive. Right? So, of course, they weren't ready to hear this. They're still grieving. And what I love is that we see in verse 12 that one of them gets up. <laughs> and who else would it have been? The one who was always all in. Peter gets up. It says he runs to the tomb. John's account, so funny, he says, Peter started running first and then I outran him. <laughs> and then he stops when he gets there, but Peter barrels all the way in. You know, I got to see it for myself. And he gets all the way in there and he, and he sees that nothing's there. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he departed and he marveled at what had happened. He's rejoicing in what has happened, though he still doesn't know the full picture. Verse 13 through the rest, we're going to go a little quickly here, but it says this. 
that two of them are traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus. It's a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem. And they talk together of the things that have happened. Now, we don't know who these, we know the name of one of them was Cleopas, but these are probably just some unnamed disciples. They're not the 12, now 11. They're not those guys. But they had been around Jesus. And so it says that they're walking, they converse, they reason together. And as they're doing that, it says that Jesus himself draws near and he went with them. It said their eyes were restrained. They couldn't, they didn't know what was going on. And Jesus asked them, what kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another? Why are you sad? And they look at him and go, are you a stranger, man? Did you miss this? Everyone saw this. And I love what Jesus says. What thing? I mean, I, I don't know how sarcastic Jesus was or wasn't. Probably not that much. But, <laughs> you know, this is just, what? Tell me what happened. And so they tell him, they go, man, this prophet. And you can imagine the hurt that's in their heart. This prophet, he was mighty indeed, and in word before God and the people. And, and the chief priests, they, they condemned him to death and they crucified him. Look at verse 21. We were hoping that it was he. he we thought it was him who's going to redeem Israel. We thought finally this would be our Messiah. That's why we were worshiping him on Palm Sunday. We thought he was going to come in, conquer Rome, kick him out. We'd have our land again. We thought this was going to work out real good for us. He said, indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since it's happened. And for them, it's like, and even stranger, you know, these, these women went to the tomb and they astonished us. They didn't find the body. They said they saw a vision of angels and that he's alive. And then certain of those uh, with us went to the tomb. They found it like the women said, but, but we haven't seen him. And Jesus says this to them. Oh, foolish one. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. I have found them. And Jesus nails it here. That the issue is a heart issue. It's always a heart issue. He doesn't say, you guys are slow of mind. You just don't get things. No, you got hard hearts. He says, you're slow of heart. And, that, and that's foolish. He says, you needed to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And then he begins at Moses. That would be the first five books of the Bible. And then all the prophets. And he expounded to them all that the scriptures, uh, from the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. This would be the greatest Bible study ever taught. I mean, don't you wish you could have just listened? We have some great teachers in our generation who are great expositors of the Word. And you can listen to certain people teach through Leviticus and go, whoa, I didn't realize all those things that Jesus was there in Leviticus. Can you imagine Jesus walking you through Leviticus? 
And he says that he began at Moses. And he starts talking. What kind of things could they have been? Going back to Genesis and again that first animal sacrifice that was made on Adam and Eve's behalf. Getting to Noah and talking about salvation through Noah. Talking about Melchizedek and all the things that happened there. What about when he got to the beginning part of Exodus talking about that burning bush and how he called Moses and spoke to him? Or, or the Passover and how he would be the Passover? Or the salvation and the picture of heaven that's pointed at in the tabernacle? And the law itself and the burnt offering, and the grain offering, and the scapegoat that had to take the sins outside the camp? What about when he talked about in Joshua, about the commander of the Lord's army? He said, that was me talking to Joshua there. Telling him to be strong and of good courage. Or in the book of Ruth, saying that kinsman redeemer stuff, that's me. And he talked about all the prophecies the hundreds of prophecies that were given. Saying when Moses said that, and when Isaiah said that, and when Jeremiah said it this way, and when Daniel said it this way, this is who I am, and this is, this is what it is. And man, you could imagine, you know, there's sometimes, some people teach Bible studies, and, and they're starting to end, and you're like, no, 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 don't stop yet. You know? And so as they're, as they're coming near, it says they draw near a village in verse 28. And he said he's going to go further. It says they constrained him. That word is a physical word. It's like they grabbed him and said, you're not going anywhere. You're going to stay here with us. Abide with us. It's towards evening. The day is far spent. Uh, and so he went in to stay to them. And, and watch this. It says it comes to pass that he sat at the table with them. He took bread, blessed and broke it. I don't know if this sounds familiar. And he gave it to them. And in verse 31 it says, Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And then he We don't know exactly what it was in that time together. But as he sits down and breaks it, it could have been when he started praying over the meal that they go... You know when someone prays, everyone kind of prays differently. But you know, you know, sometimes you're in a prayer meeting, your eyes are closed, and someone starts praying, you go, I know who that is. The way they talk. I mean, can you imagine hearing Jesus Christ? What that must have been like. The intimacy you have with the Father to pray in a certain way. Maybe it was at that point. Maybe it was when he started blessing the bread and breaking it and handing it out that they remembered a, a time when there was a lot of people. And he said, put the people into groups. we got to feed them. And he started breaking bread and handing it out. And they go, whoa. <laughs> We've seen this. Maybe it was just the authority he took. It seems very strange that somebody would walk into somebody else's house and all of a sudden become the master of the ceremony here. And that he would take charge and go, okay, I'm going to...
break the bread. I'm going to pass it out. And they saw that authority. It could have been that. Maybe it could have been that when he, when he opened the bread and he started handing it out, that they saw some very real scars as he handed them out. And they said, whoa. Or it could just be something totally supernatural that he just opened their eyes and they saw him. And he vanishes from their sight and they look at each other and go, man, did not our hearts burn within us? As he was saying these things, man, didn't, you know, the way he opened the scriptures to us. And so it says that they rose up that very hour. They returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven. And what did they say? They said, the Lord is risen indeed. He's alive. Guys, we have been begotten to a living hope. We have a God who lives. And that's what we rejoice in today. I'm telling you, Easter is like the Super Bowl of Christianity. It's the biggest part. I love Christmas. That's great. That's when he came. But we have a living God. We don't talk to some statue who can't hear us, who can't see us, and can't do anything to help us. We speak to a living God who hears and he sees and he knows and he has come to save and he has come to help. And he offers us eternal life. You know, you ever think, where would you be this morning if it weren't for the Lord? Where would we find ourselves if it wasn't for Jesus? And to know that we have life when this life ends. But Jesus also says, but I've, I've given you life more abundantly. I give you life here in this life. Friends, we need to remember that Jesus did not come just to make bad men good. Jesus came, he died, and he rose again to make dead men come to life. And so salvation is not to those who just say that they believe there was once a man called Jesus. Or those trying to add, to add his teachings to their morality. Salvation is to those who confess their sins and put their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The two go together. It's not just his death. In Romans chapter 4, it says that he was delivered up for our offenses. He was raised up for our justification. So we can't hide or excuse our sin or our badness. We don't compare ourselves to others. Say, well, I'm better than that person at least. That's not what we do. We confess of our sin. And we turn from it. Jesus came to save our sins, not our excuses. So we confess our sins and we repent. And we remember the reason Jesus really came. Because sometimes we can get our eyes down onto this world. Jesus didn't come to give us riches. He didn't come to give us happiness. He didn't come so we'd have better marriages or better children. He didn't even come necessarily to give us peace. He came to die for sin. He came to pay for our sin. Now, once we come into a relationship and we learn life abundant, we see that usually He fixes things, the things that we ruin. 
We're not just random things happening here on earth, guys. Today tells us that there's a purpose. That our sins are forgiven. We have peace with God. Glory. Hallelujah. That we get to worship the Lord. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, when we look at what you have done to redeem sinful people to yourself, Lord, most of us in this room would not die for one another. Lord, most of us, I know speaking for myself, I probably wouldn't die for people I'd never met. But Lord, it says that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And so we thank you this morning for salvation. There's so many other things we could thank you for, but this morning we remember Jesus. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here today, Lord, maybe they've never put their trust in you. Lord, they haven't turned from their sin. And Jesus, today you invite them to say, leave that behind. Walk away from that. I'm here to forgive. I'm here to give you life. I'm here to give you life more abundant. Lord, maybe you would draw people to yourself this morning. And so if there's anybody in here with with eyes closed, with heads bowed, if you're here this morning, you go, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I don't have the assurance that I would go to heaven when I die. If you need the forgiveness of sin, we'd love to introduce you to Jesus. Or maybe you've walked away. You haven't been near and you go, I need to come home today. You might even think, I don't, I don't have what it takes to turn from my sin. You don't need that. Jesus has that. You come just the way you are. And Jesus does the forgiveness. And then he does the washing. And so if there's anybody here this morning, I'd invite you to just raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you need forgiveness, just raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you. Lord, we thank you this morning that we're here with family, that we've accepted you as our Savior. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice continually in all that you have done. We give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.